Georgie Dinkov uh, defeated Danny Roddy. How are you? <laughs> I'm all right. <laughs> Semi-defeated Georgie as well. <laughs> I tried to set up the, the questions here and uh, we're at a no-go. And so I was extremely excited to do video questions. We got about uh, seven excellent video questions and I was extremely excited, but I can't share the audio with you. And so we'll just nix it for this stream and we'll do it next time. So Anyways, we'll start where we always start. How is Washington? How is the riot? Uh, how is all that stuff? Uh, I mean, there's still people in front of the White House um, and, you know, maybe like two or three blocks around it. Um, I haven't seen anything, anything uh, really bad happening except like, what was it like? Was it last week where uh, somebody got stabbed? There was like a clash. There was a pro-Trump rally and it was an anti-Trump rally and then they clashed and like some people got stabbed. But I don't think anybody died. Uh, that's about it. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Wasn't that a video that was going around? Um, I know it's kind of a lengthy video of a guy like pushing people and then he gets jacked in the back of the head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like the same uh, 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 the same group of people basically got like in, into an altercation later on and somebody got stabbed. Uh, oh. So it's, it's not – I mean I haven't seen like the way I know it's something bad is happening. You'll see like um, maybe two or three helicopters of the metro – uh, police department and uh, some of, some of these drones, like the really large ones that are like Cessna, ba based on the Cessna plane, they will fly like way up there, and those are federal drones. So that's how you know they're expecting like either a large crowd or something something bad happening. Um, I haven't seen those like I don't know in a week, um, but we do get like helicopters, at least one flying on a daily basis, but um, not at night, which tells me that there aren't that many people uh, gathering in front of the White House right now. Mm -hmm. And what did we talked about this a little bit, but what are you, what are you anticipating? What, what's your given thought process of everything that's happening right now? Um, I don't think, I mean, I know that Trump is saying he's going to have like a smooth second term. Uh, I don't know if the, I, I, to me, that's like a less of a probability, a bigger probability would be some kind of a um, quag, quagmire or deadlock. And basically like, then we go into the alternative method of electing a president and uh, I, don't, I don't even know what that is because really so because there's multiple pathways for for Trump to basically, um, you know, uh, you know, call into question the results. Uh, he can I think like uh, state delegates can call for like alternative electoral voters, electoral college voters to be sent. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. They can I think also the electoral college voter, the voters themselves can be instructed not to vote <laughs> according to the how the state voted. And I think that that has definitely happened in the past. Right. Um, there could also be like, um, I'm guessing, um, the, something done through the courts, right? Cause right now, um, Trump seems to have lost some of the cases, but, but basically like since none of them were thrown out with prejudice means he can appeal. So ultimately if you keep appealing, especially if it's something of that magnitude, it will reach the Supreme court. And I think if the Supreme court over, overturns even one state, uh, and agrees with the argument that, that there's a significant amount of fraud, I think this will throw into question the entire election and Trump will basically say, it's not just one state, it's many other states, so I'm just going to stay as president. And then I don't know, I don't know what happens after that. I mean, it's, I don't think it's ever been tested. What happens if he refuses to leave the White House? They keep saying, well, Secret Service will like throw him out for trespassing, right? Um, I'm not sure that that's actually how it can play out. I think the military can get involved. Uh, Department of Homeland Security can get involved. Um, what if he orders the military or some other branch while he's still president to do certain things that undermine, you know, the, 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 the Biden taking power. And I think we're seeing some of that happening already by, by withholding the funds. 
Speaking of the military, I should have sent it to you, but did you see that um, general talking about the emergency? Uh, um, I, I forget the exact verbiage, but like the emergency um, and uh, uh, <laughs> uh, giving people the uh, the vaccine and 24 hours of, of all Americans obtaining this vaccine. It was, it was just a, a day ago or two days ago. I'm really explaining it very poorly. So the military a, will, be, will be delivering the vaccine to every American within 24 hours? A general, I should like play the audio, but it's like the general uh, was giving some kind of speech and he was saying that the, the vaccine would be available for every American within 24 hours. And he was cloaking it in the idea of like equitable equitability if that's a word like saying like no group will be denied their well, vaccine right well we're gonna make sure you're getting it whether you even hide in the bush or not right <laughs> so but uh, yeah. it's that it, the video is fairly fairly shocking it just came out um anyways i follow a follow a guy named Derek brose who's actually in mexico i should try to link up with him at some point but he, he's a uh, not partisan you know and he he was saying operation warp speed is about as crooked as it gets and but this general is uh you know how we were talking about the military being involved in operation warp speed and any yeah, kind yeah. of vaccination yeah. type of deal but this general seemed to imply that the every american was going to get a vaccine within 24 hours or something well i think in terms of access yes uh, I mean, of course i'm not ruling anything out um uh, if they want to vaccinate us what are we going to do like you know uh, walk walk up in front of them with my ak while they have like a tank <laughs> with a can of point at me. I mean, it's, it's really not a fair fight. But um, um, I think one thing that may prevent the immediate uh, mandation, mandating of the vaccine is that none of the vaccines will be fully approved. They will be available under the emergency use authorization. And that's, that's giving was, the government... That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, it's giving ahead. the government some qualms about making it mandatory because technically it opens up, even though uh, there's a lot of wiggle room about immunity for the companies and whatnot, uh, I think the, the actual federal government get, it gets exposed to like legal action. Of course, assuming the courts are not compromised, and they probably are, right? But uh, you know, you don't want to make mandatory something that has not been fully approved because if anything happens and we expect that you know it will be it will get nasty for some people, then you basically like it's a really solid case saying why would you mandate something that you know is experimental, right? Emergency use authorization really means. Yeah, basically, if the patient wants it and the doctor approves it and the doctor thinks that the risks outweigh the benefits, then the patient may get it. But the patient usually has to sign like this extensive disclaimer saying that you don't understand this can kill you. That's pretty much what it says. And then, you know, of course, that uh, if the doctor is honest enough, he or she is supposed to say that, say like, hey, there's no guarantees that this will actually work. <laughs> I mean, you can actually croak, right? Um, so, So in a situation like that, I mean, I don't know if the government really makes something experimental like this mandatory, then I think it's game over for all of us. I mean, it's basically at that point, you might as well pick up and leave. But I don't know that they're not going to be able to reach you no matter where you go unless you really go to like a third world country that has no – that the government has no – that the powers that be have no interest in. Uh, I don't know where these countries are. It seems like Central Asia is becoming more and more <laughs> attractive because over there they've been acting like – they're very authoritarian countries – but if you look at the stans, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, etc., all of them have declared COVID officially a hoax. In fact, you can get jailed in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. You can get jailed by saying that COVID-19 is, is an actual disease. Uh, Belarus declared COVID-19, I think essentially the link, declared a mental illness. 
so some of these <laughs> some of these countries are, are really like leading the way in democracy right now <laughs> and it's really ironic because it's coming this this leadership in democracy and freedom it's coming from some of the most closed down most most uh, uh, I don't know uh, isolated dictatorships in the world and maybe that's you know now I'm starting to think maybe that's the way for a country to survive you basically be, act like a complete madman like North Korea. Uh, what was the thing like? Uh, was it Golda Meir, the Israel pr- Prime Minister, who said that when they asked like her why why does why does Israel need uh, all of these nuclear weapons? And she's like, well, I'm not going to talk about whether we have them or not. But our policy ever since the Holocaust has been Israel must act like a mad rabid dog, which is too dangerous to ever bother with, right? Mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. and I think this approach has now been adopted by several other countries. Some of these like isolated reclusive dictatorships, and they seem to be doing just fine. You know, it's really like the open societies that are really paying the price for for all of this this free, free flow of information, free flow of capital, right? I mean, all this is all good if the intentions are good, but but information and money they're neutral in terms of intent. If the intent behind them is bad, they can be they can be absolutely atrocious in terms of the, the, their impact on civilization. Um, and that's why I think we're seeing some countries saying, you know what, I'm going to pass on the benefits of free society and cosmopolitanism and, uh, I don't know, internet and whatnot, which is going to stay a little backwards here, but guess what? We're going to maintain our sovereignty, at least for now. Right. And, uh, we're going to maintain our sanity and, and life will actually quality of life over there is probably, it's probably better. Uh, I, I mean, of course, there's pro- poverty and other things as well. But in terms of actually getting brainwashed to the level that we are, probably on both sides of the political spectrum, I don't think these people have that problem. They have one guy to worry about, and they kind of know what his speeches are going to be. 6 a.m., the great leader is going to give a speech. I don't know. The Noon, the great leader is going to give a speech. But it's more or less like a routine. And, it, and as long as you don't really say anything against the great ruler, great ruler doesn't really care about you. He cares about amassing his money, and that's it. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, that definitely wasn't happening in Thailand. That, it was that was like one of the most authoritarian. Play- I, I like aspects of Thailand. You know, the people are extraordinarily nice. But uh, that I think I probably told this a hundred times. But stuff was happening in June. You know, like the implementation of things was so quick there. Scanning your phone, uh, guards at the doors. Like in, in Thailand, if you want to go to like a mall uh, or a grocery store, rather, you have to ac- enter through a mall. And they had guards at the the door checking your scanning your thermal stuff, checking your temperature, like the whole rigmarole. And then they'd have guards at the up and down the escalators and things. And it was it was so coordinated and it happened so quickly, like the Cronus stuff only really happened in March, you know, and they were already implementing like a whole marketing campaign. And so, yeah, I mean, I I don't want to get too heavy here, but it really does feel like the last stand, (laughs) you know, like if if this is allowed to happen, it's really. uh, Yeah, like I said, it's game over. I mean, it's going to be I think the world was split into the plebs who have absolutely no rights and no hope. And then, and then, of course, the elites are on the other extreme. And in between will be people who have a little bit of money and they're going to start doing – I think I sent you the link that black markets for fake negative COVID tests are springing up, right? I think mm-hmm. something like this will happen with the first version of the vaccine. Um, but the second one, which has the actual nanoparticles inside of you that you actually – you get your skin scan to confirm whether you have the vaccine or not – uh, I, I guess there'll be ways around it too, right? So it'll be just another black market for for kind of like 
for getting a license that you're part of society while in in in, in the meantime being you know a complete outlaw uh but of course not many people will be able to afford that yeah, well, we can we can move on after this. But I guess the I, I didn't read this specific part, but I, I, I forgot who I was listening to. But they were talking about, you know, how the World Economic Forum has like projected scenarios for yeah. kind of what 2030 looks like. They were saying that people lived outside of the megapolis smart cities. And, and so the, even they project that people will deny or reject s- s- what they're trying to implement. And so I don't know what outs- <laughs> living outside of the city looks like per se, but um, yeah, that will be. Well, I mean, there's some fairly remote areas. Um, like if you go to like, uh, I mean, in North America, I guess it's fairly, fairly, fairly densely populated, and really the authorities are on your case no matter where you go. But I'm sure you, there's some remote places in Alaska where probably like they're like semi, they're lawless. Like police probably like basically they're saying like, okay, as long as you know you take care of those bears, like and don't run drug communes here <laughs> we're gonna let you be and uh, i think there's some places like that in canada as well especially on the on the western coast and like further further up north uh the closer you, you, you get to the north pole i think it's just the less law there is naturally it's just not not an area of interest um for for the government it's really nothing there and like you're probably gonna have some like semi-lawless communities spring up in remote areas like that um of course that will bring its own problems because usually when you try to set up like a like an area like this that is like you know free spirited and outside of the law it attracts um, e- either actual criminals or saboteurs sent by the government to like spring the basically like introduce disease or drugs or crime and then naturally these things fall apart i mean there've been several attempts to set up something i think the biggest one is in in denmark i think or Netherlands, I'm forgetting, I'm blanking where, but basically that's what happened. Like, And then for, for a decade, they were having these problems with drugs and crime. And then it turned out that all of these people that, that eventually got arrested, they were all agents of the government. They were sent there to basically like to, to uh, I don't know, spur chaos. Um, so um, I, I guess if you're really remote and you're not in an area, because again, Denmark and Netherlands, you're in the heart of Europe. Like, you know, I don't think the government there will allow for freedom to, to flourish. But if you're going to like northern Canada or like remote Alaska or like Central Asia or somewhere in Siberia, um, some places in Latin America, too, I think like the, the Andes, like if you're deep in the mountains, uh, I mean, there are, pl- there, there are plenty of tribes. There are these not uncontacted Indians. And I think for now, uh, they're going to leave them alone. They're not going to vaccinate them because it's been known that actually these tribes don't do well because they they have never been exposed to any of these diseases. And it's known that even the vaccines for them are very dangerous. So maybe that's the way to, to do it. You go there, join a tribe, and you act like you're an uncontacted Indian tribe member and, and forget about the world. <laughs> Just go join a tribe. That's no right. big deal. <laughs> yeah. Now, they may cook you and eat you alive, but like, <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, actually, the, the, they seem to be pretty... Uh, uh, pretty, pretty uh, uh, peaceful, but they did usually. They, you know, at some point they do try to attack the people that try to contact us. So, so that's why right now they send drones to like film them from above. But even now, you can see like they're trying to shoot arrows at the drone, and <laughs> and they're getting angry. So somehow instinctively they feel that this, that this is like the, the I don't want to call it the white man because it's not only the white man, but it's like the civilized man really cannot bring any benefit <laughs> to them. So so even though they've never seen a drone in their life, I'm sure they've seen a, a flying bird, th- why would they be shooting arrows at the drone and getting angry at it, but not not shooting arrows at like, I don't know, at birds or like or, or other other members of the natural world. 
speaking of drones and Native Americans and things like that, uh, Dylan Morrison, I'm remembering the name off the top of my head. He won the BitChute uh, giveaway. Okay. So Dylan, uh, email Danny at DannyRoddy.com and we'll get your address and then Georgie will ship that. Thank you, Georgie. You know, you're the one doing this contest. And so people uh, give Georgie a thank you and a what's up, uh, maybe on Twitter or something. But uh, Georgie is being so um, charitable. Uh, if my Twitter so account doesn't get banned, I posted today, uh, I had a post about the mask not working. So I'm kind of curious to see if Twitter is going to flag me or out- outrightly ban my account. <laughs> uh, I heard something crazy today. I know somebody that uh, comments on Gavin Newsom's Twitter uh-huh. and and she and she's I know her very well. And she she said that she got her uh, account disabled both times that she did that. Really? And I was like, that, yeah, that seems like totally crazy. I didn't. Wow. Uh, anyways. Anyways, okay, for the bit shoot thing, we're going to do things a little bit differently. I didn't really think through the idea of hundreds of people emailing me. <laughs> so that was that was not a good strategy for the giveaway. But go ahead and subscribe on bitshoot.com slash Danny Roddy. And then the latest video, just leave a comment on the latest video. And that's how we'll do the giveaway from now on. So I had like tons of people emailing me and I don't, I don't mind, but it's like when I go to my email, it's like business and work. And, and I had tons of Tokovit entries. And so now that's how you enter. Uh, what else do I want to say? Um, subscribe. Obviously the contest is based on subscribing to BitChute, uh, censorship free telegram, at least for now on Odyssey. We're also on there. And again, I've had a consciousness sh- a consciousness shift with these live streams. Uh, people were upset. Some people were upset that I said they were disposable. I that's probably a poor choice of words. I didn't mean like I think they're trash. I just meant that uh, I'm I'm very like sanctimonious with the content that I create, and sometimes it takes me weeks or months to make something, you know. And so if if something I was making for weeks or months got like deleted, I'd be pretty depressed about it. But with these live streams, they're kind of like shooting from the hip. We're chatting on Skype. And I always think I can talk to you again and we'll do another one. So it's just like for me as a content creator, it's a little bit different. And so, but I apologize, Georgie. I told you via email that I didn't, I don't think your in, dis, information is disposable or you are disposable. So Hey man, no need to apologize. We're all disposable. <laughs> Have you seen Fight Club? What was that? We're decaying organic matter. <laughs> you are but not again, special. <laughs> Repeat that, after yeah. me, right? <laughs> but I just wanted to clear that up. I, I really love doing these. And so again, maybe that was a poor choice of words. But anyways, okay. So we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor Podcasts. Uh, Georgie is on Twitter at HeyDit. Uh, we'll get to ID Labs and other things. Okay, maybe we should... Get into an article. <laughs> what, what, what were you jazzed to talk about? Uh, several of them, but I think the the ones that have been getting a lot of comments, despite being fairly new, just from this afternoon, is the orange juice is therapy for all coronaviruses, including uh, SARS-CoV COVID two. I guess COVID nineteen. You can you can call that as well, which will be the actual disease. Uh, and actually, I mean, I said orange juice, but it's really naringenin. Um, and basically, the study said it's got really strong direct antiviral effects. It inhibits the the entry of the virus in, into the cell, and then even after the virus is inside the cell, it inhibits the hijacking of the virus that the virus does of the RNA machinery, uh, and then also inhibits the after the virus produce the cell starts producing the new viral particles, it inhibits their exit from the cell and getting into the bloodstream, and finally the uh, it also the study talks about how basically the is a really powerful 
wide spectrum anti-inflammatory substance. So even if you get the actual infection, it, it, it has already, you know, to, uh, it's already taken hold and you're starting to develop COVID-19. It should, well, I shouldn't say should. Uh, they found in the study that it may prevent it from, you know, getting into full-blown, um, I don't know, hospitalization level disease uh, with multi-organ failure and lung failure and whatnot. Um, and basically, they say in the study that naringenin, uh, you know, the, the data presented in this work points to naringenin as a safe anti-SARS-CoV-2 agent endowed with pan-coronavirus inhibitory activity, which means against all coronaviruses, um, which means that even if this virus mutates or we get hit by pandemic two, which is Bill Gates, as he, as he told us smirkingly, um, I think it's like a few weeks ago or a few months ago, he said, like, that will get our attention, right? Uh, so if it's one of the coronaviruses, I guess the study saying that naringenin should work against that as well. Um, and the coronaviruses in general, I think they cause like 30, about 30% of the flus uh, around the world. So it's a really, it's a really interesting substance. And uh, I mean, I mentioned the post as well. It's got, it's uh, uh, one of the few known strong uh, natural phytoantiestrogens, I call them. Uh, you know, they're, they're officially called them phytoprogestogens. But if you look at naringenin and apigenin, which uh, Pete has mentioned several times in articles and uh, in interviews. Um, they're actually they're actually direct antagonists on the estrogen rece- receptor and are one of the few non-steroid known antagonists of that estrogen receptor. Uh, they're also known to block the cor- the cortisol receptor. They're uh, they're activating the progesterone receptor. Uh, I think both of them are actually aromatase inhibitors as well. Uh, so you really get like a such a wide spectrum of positive effects. Uh, and I think that's that's one of the reasons we're seeing this um, this this uh, effect through multiple mechanisms of action. So it's not just because there are quite a few like substances. For example, saturated fat will make the the cell more resilient to the virus getting inside of the cell. But I think the satur- I don't think the saturated fat has any effects on inhibiting virus replication, uh, or at least I haven't seen studies about that. And then um, you know there there's some there's some substances that can block the basically the virus the newly for- produced virus from getting outside of the cell, which is what glycine uh, did in a, another post of mine um, that we I think we discussed the last time. But then the com- the combination of these three things and also the broad spectrum of anti-inflammatory effects. There are not many chemicals that are like that, and I think outside of progesterone, uh, pregnenolone, you know may- maybe DHEA, um, I mean which are all steroids, and some people don't want to use steroids. I guess the closest you can get to that is is one of those um, you know natural non-steroidal molecules that are uh, mostly available in uh, you know if you want to get them through the diet, uh, chamomile, um, guava, and basically uh, oranges uh, have them in the highest amount, and, uh, and grapefruit juice as well. Um, so both orange and grapefruit juice they actually they don't contain free naringenin; they contain naringin, and the naringin is the gl- glycoside form. Of naringenin, so it's basically naringenin with a bunch of sugar molecules attached to it. So when you ingest the orange juice under the influence of the stomach acid and then the bacteria in your colon, basically uh, the, the, these these uh, um, bonds get cleaved and you get free naringenin uh, released as a result. So 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 there isn't much free naringenin in orange juice, but there's a it's there's a lot of its its precursor. I mean, if you drink a glass of orange juice, you're basically getting about 200 to 300, 250 milligrams. 200 to 250 milligrams of naringenin, um, uh, and that should be enough to achieve the therapeutic concentrations that were seen in that study. 
Yeah, this was one of the things that I was kind of like uh, upset coming from low carb and and kind of learning a lot of the things that Ray was talking about that people always called like fruit bags of sugar with zero redeeming qualities. <laughs> and then when Ray was talking about uh, Neuringenin and Neuringen and how it's uh, like a COX-2 inhibitor, like has similar aspects to aspirin and inhibits the formation of the prostaglandins and then it inhibits in, in what is it? Inducible nitric oxide yeah. synthase. Yep. Uh, and then. And it does, I think, a lot more than, I, and like you said, it, it does it directly inhibit aromatase? Oh, is, yeah. Is basically, right? apigenin mm-hmm. and naringin are uh, basically uh, two chemicals that are known to be uh, uh, aromatase inhibitors. They're fairly potent, too, um, similar to, uh, and they're also an antagonist at their estrogen receptor as well. It's rare. Like, usually, I mean, from the steroids, it's basically uh, uh, progesterone and, and dihydrotestosterone that, I, that I'm aware of that actually have both properties together. Uh, in, and, but in nature... It's very rare to get that. In fact, the phytoestrogens are really, really widely distributed in nature. It's rare to even find a phytoantiestrogen, let alone something that's it's an antiestrogen and an aromatase inhibitor. Um, apigenin and naringenin, fisetin is another one. There's uh, bicalin is another one. So there's several. And if you look at the molecular structure, they're, they're fairly close to each other structurally. Uh, and then you also, but you also have the really potent phytoestrogens which are just the very close isomers of naringenin, the, the isoflavonoids. So genistein, didzine, um, you know, these are basically like uh, uh, coumarins. They're, they're, very, they're very potent estrogens themselves. So, so, so you can go either way, but like if you make sure you drink these juices that we mentioned, um, especially if they're ripe, then you're likely to get mostly the anti-estrogens. The, the phytoestrogens tend to be present in the protein fraction of, of uh, plant protein. So it's like if you're eating a lot of soy, a lot of a lot of legumes. So mostly it's the legumes that have it, but like wheat has them as well. Uh, rice uh, without uh, if you eat if you eat the rice with the hull, uh, it, it also contains them to 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 a degree. Not as much as let's say like soy does and and beans, but it does have them as well. Peanuts have them you know, in a very large amounts. So most of the legumes are basically pumped with full of uh, phytoestrogens. And it's really basically the tropical fruits, ripe tropical fruits are the ones that are most likely to have the phytoantiestrogens, like Mm -hmm. naringenin and apigenin and bicalian, et cetera. Good stuff. I want to go to the DHT or fasting. Uh, Let's do the DHT. Um, Basically, um, as many people know, DHT, well, synthetic versions of DHT, such as uh, Provirone and Masterone, um, they've been approved for, for a while now, and basically they're, the only difference is that they have an, one extra methyl group on position one or two. Um, I think Proviron is one alpha methyl DHT, and Masterone is two alpha methyl DHT. And all that extra methyl group does is basically slows down the metabolism of DHT into, uh, they call them inactive uh, metabolites such uh, such as the uh, five be- uh, five beta and five alpha androstein diols, which are the alcohols of that steroid, um, they're actually still active and they have some some really beneficial properties as well. But uh, those synthetic derivatives DHT was were, were created because very early, like in the late fifties and early sixties, um, medicine was already realizing that these uh, steroids have a have great potential for treating estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. Um, and at the time, they were using a lot of other steroids for treatment, including testosterone and nendrolone. But they noticed that with testosterone and nendrolone, and basically all of the steroids that are capable of aromatization, in other words, raising estrogen, uh, both testosterone and nandrolone, and nandrolone are in that category. 
they were getting benefits, uh, uh, but basically in a significant portion of the women, they're also getting drastic exacerbations as well. I think basically the, so, you know, depending on the on the health of the woman, how much uh, extra fat she carries and state of the metabolism, et cetera, et cetera, just like DHEA. If you overdo testosterone and androlone, you may actually, you know, end up causing a lot more damage than benefit. And they, they notice that if you're using the fully reduced steroids, such as DHT and some of the derivatives, you're getting all of the benefits without really this danger. Now, why not use DHT? Well, aside from the monetary reason, because DHT could not be patented, they also DHT is also a fairly strong, actually the, strong, the strongest endogenous androgen, so it has very strong virilizing effects in women, like growing whiskers and you know body hair and thickening of the voice and things like that. So by adding that extra methyl group on, you know, in creating provirone and masterone, which are really DHT with just one extra methyl group, they they basically notice that you can get the anti-estrogenic effects without the virilization. But they never really figure out what's the mechanism of action of these steroids. How are they blocking breast cancer from developing? Um, and I think this is one of the few studies that shows that DHT is actually directly antagonizing estrogen at the receptor level as a steroid. Um, and it also mentions that other steroids such as testosterone and, and nandrolone are also such estrogen antagonists, but they are aromatizable. Um, so DHT being also an aromatase inhibitor, and I think just as I mentioned when we're discussing orange juice, is basically it's in the class of chemicals, one of the few that are known to both block the effects of estrogen at the receptor level genomically and also inhibits aromatase. Um, so I guess you can think of DHT as the, the steroidal version of naringenin. Um, so if you, you know, if you want to use DHT and if you, especially if you're a male, uh, you know, basically, um, I think it can only have beneficial effects. If you don't want to use steroids, but you still want the estrogenic effects, you get, you go with apigeny or, or naringenin. Um, so yeah, that's it. I mean, it's like, it's a rare chemical, like I said, rare property in chemicals to be both blocking the effects of estrogen once it's already formed and also inhibits its synthesis. And I think there's some evidence that that uh, fully saturated steroids, because they're also lipids, they're just like saturated fat, they increase the lipophilicity of the cell. And since estrogen is highly hydrophilic, or at least a lot more hydrophilic than DHT, uh, because of multiple double bonds and also the, uh, the the multiple hydroxyl groups, then basically the more lipophilic the cell is, the, the, the harder time estrogen will have getting inside of the cell. So you have multiple mechanisms of action. I'd like to believe you, but I read a paper by Merck that told the FDA that DHE had no role in the, the human body. Right. And so and all the people, all the authors of that paper are now dead. And three of them are dead from prostate cancer after they castrated themselves with the with their remarkably effective drugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I'd be interested in your take, also Ray's take, but I, you know how the pseudo-hermaphrodites for uh, Imperito McGinley, so this is kind of the history of baldness research. Imperito McGinley went into the Dominican Republic and found these pseudo-hermaphrodites that had a, allegedly a 5-alpha reductase deficiency. But, but I was reading that there's a corresponding deficiency of 17 yes. alpha hydroxylase. Exactly. And if, if you have a deficiency of that, you you produce a massive amount of uh, pregnenolone, right. progesterone, right. and D, DHEA yep. too, right? Yep, yep. yep. And, and so I how... I don't... I, again, I'd have to go back and reread all these pa these papers, but... That seems to complicate things a lot, you yeah. know, because because, again, if you're trying to figure out what does or doesn't cause baldness, hyper focusing on this five alpha reductase deficiency is like, uh, 
yeah, yeah, that could be part of it. But then you have this backup of steroid metabolism producing huge amounts of these other extremely important steroids. And so, so, so here's um, the thing: you've seen you've seen little children, right? I mean, before the age of five, it's a very they're they're mostly lacking what what people call sexual dimorphism. Uh, mm-hmm. And I've I mean I've seen him I've I've it has it has happened to myself and I've seen many people make the same mistake. You go to a playground and if it's a fairly young child, let's say like three years or younger, uh, it's sometimes unless unless they're dressed in a specific way. And now we're getting even that being being erased because of course you cannot be dressing your boy as a boy. You know what kind of a <laughs> sexual freak or like chauvinist no, you, got, you are. You got to raise them as having no gender. I actually exactly. have a friends yeah. that say they do that. <laughs> but if you look at those children, if you remove the clothing or any kind of external sign sometimes you have a very hard time saying which one is a boy and which one is a girl and the reason is precisely because they're abundant in these in the pregnenolone and progesterone they actually don't have much dhea that that Mm -hmm. starts uh you know to get pumped out during puberty and Mm -hmm. during puberty males start getting the testosterone and the girls start getting a lot more estrogen but before puberty the hormonal profile of of males and females is actually fairly close um, so the reason I'm saying that is that, yeah, so so these hermaphrodites that they were calling them, I mean, I want to see pictures of them. I bet that they weren't hermaphrodites. They were simply like they, they looked like very young children. So it was it was hard to say what gender they are, but they were they didn't look like because, you know, if you look at hermaphrodites, hermaphrodites have gyno. So basically, mm-hmm. like it, it, they have like the, the sexual characteristics of adult males and females. And and basically the the ones that are that have the pedomorphism, which Pete spoke in one of several articles. They don't have the sexual characteristics of both genders in adults. They just lack them, actually. So you get like the child, which which you know uh, it does have the genitalia, but aside from that, it's it's almost like a, you know basically like they're, they they just look like a unisex child. That's not the same as a hermaphrodite. Hermaphrodite, at, at least the official definition is that it's an adult that has the sexual characteristics of both males and females. Children don't. It's actually to them is the opposite. They lack the sexual characteristics of both males and females. Yeah, these were uh, pseudo hermaphrodites. And so, again, I don't I don't want anybody to ding us for being inaccurate, but like the they they have masculine traits, but they're they're reared as women and they have uh, and they're. The the tribe, they were called like Hueva Doces or Guava Doces. I don't know how to say it. And their their penis uh, was like revealed at 12 years old. And so it's like it's a very I asked Ray and apparently he wasn't familiar with them. Something very odd is happening. But again, the the, uh, hermaphrodite uh, physiology seems extraordinarily complex. And the one thing I didn't add, I think you're right. I don't I, I think I'm misspoke about the DHEA. But what? Was also interesting is they produce uh, a very little cortisol, and so I think that seventeen alpha hydroxylase uh, is like um, makes you produce cortisone, but not cortisol. Yep. And also, I think they have aldosterone deficiencies as well. And so, in general, if your progesterone and progesterone are high, you're going to have low levels of aldosterone and cortisol, despite the fact that progesterone and progesterone are precursors. I mean, mm-hmm. at this point, multiple studies have come out, and they're fairly recent. And I know Ray has said this for decades. Of course, everybody laughed, right, when he said it. But actually, right now, there's there's now irrefutable evidence that progesterone inhibits, both inhibits 11-beta HSD1, which synthesizes cortisol, right, and also increases the activity of 11-beta HSD2, which actually deactivates cortisol. 
So progesterone, despite being a precursor to cortisol, it's going to inhibit the synthesis of cortisol and increase its degradation. So it's very hard to have high cortisol if you have high progesterone. It's very hard. You, uh, you, it, it, it is possible, but the, study, the only studies that I've seen were case studies of people with specific tumors that overexpress these specific enzymes, right? And then even though you basically, you have like a normal levels of, of progesterone, that tumor is going to use it in a specific way. But these tumors are so rare that you basically like, it's like one in a million or like one in five million. They're very rare endocrine tumors. In the vast majority of cases, if you have hypergnanol and or hyperprogesterone, your levels of, of cortisol will be low. And not to mention basically the, uh, so the same thing with aldosterone, 21-hydroxylase, which is the rate-limiting step for synthesizing aldosterone, that also gets inhibited by both pregnenolone and progesterone. So it's, it's perf- it makes perfect sense. I have another example why that basically for a while it was, it was giving androgens a bad name, then turned out to be wrong. So it's been known since the 60s that if you castrate uh, old animals, so old animals cannot handle alcohol well. I think most people of age will probably agree with that. They'll be like, man, my hangovers are really bad. Like they, they're they really nasty after I hit 40. When I was 20, I was able to drink like an animal and like sleep two hours and wake up and everything was fine. There is a reason for that. And then since the 60s, they've known that if you castrate old animals, their ability to tolerate alcohol recovers to the point of a 20-year-old male, like just the equivalence, right, of a young animal. And they thought that this is because, so when you castrate the animal, you get rid of the androgens, right? So f- this hypothesis, based on this one study from the 60s, demonstrated that castration improves the ability to metabolize alcohol. Now, then everybody assumed, oh my God, androgens must be bad for males. So if you castrate the males, and actually they did the same thing with the females, they removed the ovaries, right? And they said, if you remove these, these two, uh, basically the gonads of each sex, then basically your ability to metabolize alcohol recovers, which means androgens are bad for males and progesterone is bad for females. But guess also what, what turned out? That, of course, if you remove the gonads, you're also drastically decreasing the production of estrogen as well. So recently, they found out that androgens uh, strikingly increase the activity of both enzymes involved in the metabolism of alcohol, which is uh, alcohol dehydrogenase and aldehyde dehydrogenase. And then they, they did another study, which they basically castrated the animals. So they, they did the exact same uh, study as the 60s, but then they gave them an androgen, a non-aromatizable androgen on top of that. And I think it was DHT. I have to check. And these animals... They actually have an even higher ability to metabolize alcohol than even the castrated old animals. So in other words, the androgens turn out to be beneficial. You just blame the wrong thing on, you know, blame the, the androgens were just there as a, as a, what do we call it? Like, uh, uh, as a bystander, right? And when they castrated the animals for whatever corrupt reason, they decided the, the androgen is, is the reason for the inability to handle alcohol with age. But guess what? We already know the androgens are declining with age. And it's the androgens that are rising. It should have made perfect sense to question the hypothesis a long time ago. Of course, nobody did. And now we have irrefutable evidence that it is wrong for another, yet another thing, another, another medical myth disappears. It's the androgens that are protective factors in males and progesterone that is a protective factor in females. And estrogen is, again, detrimental when it comes to metabolizing probably one of the most common what should I call it, a xenobiotic, I guess, or an endocrine disruptant that everybody's consuming, almost everybody's consuming on a regular basis, namely alcohol. So so it's it, another thing, it's not a coincidence that men that drink a lot of alcohol, they develop gyno and they grow big bellies. So it's like another indication that estrogen is involved. It's not the androgens. 
So anyways, again, just like just like this myth about the pseudo-hermaphrodites, turns out that uh, life is stranger than fiction, as they say. And unfortunately, medical studies at this point have become <laughs> mostly fiction. Well, yeah, that's the point I wanted to drive home, uh, that the... This the hair loss research based on castrates and pseudo hermaphrodites, and then the event, event uh, invention of finasteride by Merck. Uh, based on what we just talked about, it is so much more complicated. Like people will talk about these things in a confabulatory type of way, or talk about oh, castration reduces testosterone, and then and then kind of skip all the details within that nugget of info. Similarly, the pseudo hermaphrodites having an extremely strange physiological situation and uh do you remember that paper talking about how um prolactin can estimate the aromatase and serotonergic activity yep. it was on, done on Mac- yeah, yeah, yeah. maca keys or whatever yeah. there there was a reference in there you've probably seen it before but they say we therefore suggest that in man estrogens and aromatizable androgens influence prolactin secretion at least in part by involving the activation of the hypothalamic serotonin system <laughs> and so so again, in, when you're getting castrated, not only you're reducing testosterone, you're also reducing uh, estrogen, and you're also reducing prolactin and serotonin. That's right. So again, this this rewrites the whole history book on not only hair loss, but like all these different diseases and things that are supposed to be because of uh, androgens. It, the sad part is that basically most of these pathways were already known at the time when these studies were being published and getting to blaming the androgens. It's really it's a nefarious thing. Like you, you have to be you have to be in a particular mindset to decide that an androgen is bad for males. Like I kind of want to see and read the biography of these people. I wouldn't be surprised if they were abused as children or something else happened because it, it speaks like a – it reads a little bit to me like a personal vendetta. Uh, you know, that they decided that, you know, something, you know, must be done about, you know, toxic masculinity or some other some other political agenda like that. I don't want to go too much into that because we're like, what are you saying, Georgie? Are you anti-feminist? <laughs> I don't want to draw the wrath again. <laughs> Speaking of personal vendetta, something I have a personal vendetta against is fasting. <laughs> there you go. So <laughs> moving on to that study, which <laughs> I already have 11 emails telling me that, if I continue posting nonsense like that, I will be I will get reported to Twitter for promoting fake news. And I oh, and I kept responding, uh, why don't you report the study? <laughs> because that's what the study says. No, we're gonna report you. Um, long story short, uh, and I think I mean the, the really interesting thing about that study is that it actually implicates uh it it, it this dismantles another myth. Uh, and a lot of supplements are right now on the market that are based on that myth. So namely, it shows that fasting, which is, and at this point, that's fairly well known, it increases the expression of this protein called PGC1-alpha. Uh, and that is known as the master bioregulator uh, of mitochondrial biogenesis. It's known to be increased by fasting. That's nothing new here, right? It's known to be increased by a number of different supplements, and all of them have one thing in common. They drop the, your levels of blood glucose. So, and I think that's actually one of the reasons why that theory actually sprung up, that it's good to keep your blood glucose levels lower because if they're lower, you're going to activate PGC1-alpha and you're going to increase the number of your mitochondria. But just even if you look at the Wikipedia page, right at the second paragraph, it says, PGC1-alpha is also the primary regulator of liver gluconeogenesis, inducing increased gene expression for gluconeogenesis. And we already know, and actually even medicine has wisened up, and I don't know why this isn't reflected here, that increased gluconeogenesis is a very bad thing. It is a sign of diabetes. 
It's a sign of, uh, I mean, it shouldn't say sign. It's, it's, it, it's, no, it's known that it is increased in diabetes, in cancer, in cardiovascular disease, in Alzheimer's disease, in many of these diseases. And it's basically, uh, you know, if you, if you deprive the body of glucose, guess what? You're going to get the glucose through the liver at the expense of, of your tissues and muscles and organs and skin and whatnot, and even your brain, right? So right there, like, it, you know, the fact that PGC-1-alpha is, is, uh, is the primary regulator of gluconeogenesis and one of the strongest upregulators of it, that should already give you a pause, right? But guess what? This study now goes two steps further. It shows that PGC, uh, the activation of PGC-1-alpha and the activation of estrogen receptor alpha always go hand in hand. In addition, the activation or, or the increased expression of PGC-1-alpha also goes hand in hand with increase the expression of glucocorticoid receptor. And even, even um, six hours of fasting, was it six or 12? Let me just make sure that I'm quoting the right thing. That even 12 hours of fasting uh, decreased vitamin D synthesis by more than 50%. And a 24-hour fast completely blocked vitamin D synthesis. Um, and the study first, uh, uh, basically discusses that these are all bad signs. They're saying like, well, maybe PGC-1-alpha is not exactly the animal that we thought it is because we're seeing increased cortisol in diabetes. We we're seeing increased estrogen in diabetes. We're seeing increased cortisol and estrogen in heart disease. We're seeing reduced vitamin D in virtually every chronic disease and now it looks like just a, just a simple act of fasting for less than a day. It's enough to decimate your vitamin D levels. And it took like several weeks for the vitamin D levels to start recovering after you drop the fast. And guess what? At least for the study length, the duration of the study, they, they never actually recover back to 100% or at least to the baseline where, where they were when the study started. So, I mean, I don't know how this study has managed to slip through the cracks and not get noticed by the, well, I guess, you know, you can, you, you can suspect the, the, the low carb or the, or the, you know, intermittent fasting crowd probably if they knew about it, they ignored it on purpose, but it's got like a, several nuggets in there that are raising serious concern about the long-term benefits of fasting. Remember I was, the study that we discussed two weeks ago about intermittent fasting, drastically reducing muscle mass, uh, decreasing quality of sleep. Uh, and increasing fat mass, and the guy who was the lead, the lead uh, investigator of the study, remember what he said? Uh, losing turns out that losing weight is not actually uh, like it shouldn't be interpreted as a good sign from the get-go. And in fact, it's rarely a good sign. And more importantly, after seven years of doing intermittent fasting, he said, "I immediately stopped as soon as I saw the results, and I will never ever recommend intermittent fasting ever again to any of my patients." So this kind of like, I think these two studies, to, they go very well together. I'm actually going to put a link to the previous one about intermittent fasting here so that people can really see that, you know, what we've been told, unfortunately, by gurus that are uh, very, very highly trusted in the, in the, in the public sector, um, it's, it turns out that yet another myth is about to collapse. And it has a very good biochemical explanation behind it. And in fact, it's not even hidden. I mean, again, like if you talk to any doctor and ask like, is increased, especially in the chronologist, is increased gluconeogenesis good or bad? More often than not, even the corrupt mainstream doctors will say, uh, it's usually not a good sign. It means like something's going on. Like even you, and they usually will say cortisol is probably up because it's the cortisol that actually drives it. So now this study directly implicates and connects PGC1-alpha with estrogen and cortisol. And from there, you can probably make the connection between that, which is the fasting, and almost every other chronic disease.
something I want to bounce off you a little off topic, uh, but the idea that somebody's like fasting, you know, d- does a period of fasting, uh, implements low carb and things like that. And then say after six months or a year or two years of doing that, they start introducing carbohydrate into the diet. Uh, say hypothetically they gain weight, right? Uh, something a Kyle Mamunis said, and I thought it was pretty brilliant. He said, you, you have to understand that fasting and low carb, you're attacking your glucose disposal systems. Yeah. You've been like uh, burdening them and blocking uh, the via the Randall cycle and things like that. And I thought that was, and so he was like, so if you start uh, eating normally and you gain some weight, it's like, yeah, <laughs> like you're supposed like to. You, yeah. So, so again, I maybe I just wanted to bounce that off you and see what your thoughts were. I'll and give another explanation because I think he actually commented on that post of mine on the forum, the repeat forum, uh, and I posted it maybe two, maybe even three years ago. It showed that exhaustive exercise and or fasting created such a drastic upregulation of the cortisol synthesis system that after the animals were subjected, and it wasn't even that brutal. Like basically they practiced either intermittent fasting or they were made to run, I think four or five times a week. So it's like, you can, I mean, it's a fairly, I don't want to call it intense. It's basically what a, a young fit person would do normally, right? Um, and then it created, it changed the expression of the 11 beta family of enzymes. It decreased the expression of, of type two, which degrades cortisol and increased the expression of type one, which synthesized cortisol. And they found out that in some of the animals, up to 40% of them, they they could not recover, at least for the duration of the study, and they had to administer the cortisol blocker RU486 because the animals had become diabetic after they stopped their fasting and or the exhaustive uh, exercise, right? Because they were burning fat throughout the entire time, and fats have their own thing, you know, it, so the increased cortisol synthesis is one thing, but the fats block, the actual, they actually downregulate the insulin receptor, so you actually produce a lot more insulin, which is a classic sign of insulin resistance. They also, of course, the Rendell cycle, the, you know, they block the, the, the metabolism of glucose. But now we know that over time, if you're giving the cell the signal that some part is not needed, right, if you're only starving and you're met- metabolizing fat, just like cancer, eventually the, the, the cell is going to start dismantling the mitochondrial apparatus for, like, metabolizing glucose. And then you're going to end up, at some point, you're probably going to end up with just glycolysis and the ability to, to end the beta oxidation mechanism, which is the hallmark of both diabetes and cancer. Um, so maybe that's really what's happening. It's, it's basically overproduction of cortisol and overoxidation of fat over time leads to a state where, yeah, of course, if you start then consuming that nutrient, first there is a there is like a compensation mechanism saying like, oh my God, we're no longer starving. I might as well, you know, you know, you know, uh, pack on the pounds because who knows when we're gonna have food again? Because that's the signal you're sending when you're fasting, right? But then it's also the changes, the structural changes that are occurring in the cell because of that prolonged period of stress. Yeah, and I just want to be <clears throat> be really clear. I'm not saying a person should just accept the weight gain or something. And and also, even if you weren't on a low carb or, or fasting regimen, just the stress of life would put you in a similar <laughs> type of situation. You know, I, I'm just I'm saying that I, I think it's foreign to a lot of people that something beyond diet might be highly necessary to reach some kind of homeostasis given years of chronic stress, whether that's low carb or fasting or just kind of accumulating many stressful experiences over a long period of time. And so I, I on this show, we know we don't focus tons of uh, time on diet. You know, we talk about dietary implementations to alleviate stress. 
but we're not we're not trying to shill some repeat diet or something. And so I think that's incredibly important to say as many times as possible, because, um, again, it's uh, you got to consider, like Ray said, the last time we talked to him, the whole thing is the what do you say? The whole thing is the whole thing. You got to consider your whole life and everything that you've been been through to solve uh, some kind of metabolic problem. Yeah, cells have memory. Happening. I mean, even mm-hmm. elementary particles have memory. And I'll give two other examples of basically, first, we have the female athlete triad. It's actually a medical condition. And and you can easily induce it, and doctors will readily admit that, by either over-exercising as a female and or fasting. Um, in fact, um, if you go to the, like if a female is is infertile and goes to the doctor, one of the first things that they will ask is, are you eating enough? Are you, are you like ingesting sufficient amount of calories? Are you, are you ingesting sufficient amount of carbs, right? And also, like, what is your exercise pattern? Are you, are you over-exercising? And very often it's both for these females. And basically, like, they would usually, a doctor would usually try to talk them out of, like, the excessively stressful lifestyle. It doesn't have to be exercise. Really, any kind of chronic stress will do it. And would uh, convince them to change the diet because actually for both males and females, if you're not consuming enough glucose, the females cannot produce viable eggs ready for fertilization. And the men will, will have sperm that has zero motility. So these carbs are crucial for that. Actually, both carbs and the amount of calories. And the second thing is the stress is also important because if you're under stress, then it's known at least in females. And I don't know why it's only it's only uh, considered to be to be possible in females. We should have the male athlete triad or the male under eating triad or the male fasting triad because the exact same thing is happening in males. There there's an epidemic of infertile males right now, and for some reason the doctors are not asking the same question. They're not asking, "Are you over exercising?" Are you are you not are you eating enough? Are you eating enough carbs? You know the 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 paradigm is that males can never get enough exercise and they're always eating too much, and that just doesn't doesn't happen doesn't seem to be the case. And at least in the females, it's known that in about forty percent of the cases, you cannot actually. It's hard to correct these things just with by restoring their diet. These females have to undergo have to go on an anti prolactin drug like bromocryptine, and sometimes they give them clomiphene, which is a really toxic way of restoring fertility because it's actually an estrogen as well. Uh, but they actually have to get these drugs in order to snap the system out of this stress mentality that it has gotten itself into uh, through the prolonged fasting and or the stress, whether self-imposed or or from the environment. So it, and another example, bodybuilders, you know, if you know, they, they actually, I don't know, for all the for all like the the blame that they get and all the all the mocking, they actually are on a semi-right track as, at least as far as building up the muscle mass. And, you know, they actually have a cycle and a post cycle, right? During the cycle, they're, they're trying to bulk. And actually, it's okay if you pack on the pounds as long as you're also packing on muscle, right? And it's been shown, uh, and, and they know it, that basically it's very rare for the bodybuilder to actually uh, get some kind of a, like a crisis episode during the bulking style, cycle. It's usually the post cycle, especially when you're getting around like like uh, competitions, we have to lose a lot of water weight uh, because you have to. This mean, they usually cut carbs drastically or use cutting steroids. It's basically they're healthiest when they're eating like significant amount of calories, pumping really heavy weights, and actually taking some of those steroids that we know are beneficial, especially testosterone. Because once they get to the cutting phase, they drastically cut calories and carbs, and they start taking the more estrogenic cutting steroids such as Trembolone, right? And it's it, it's usually at that point where you're getting, and there's also other kinds of stressors as well. They're taking beta agonists and whatnot to like uh, also cut the fat, right? 
because they think that by increasing the burning of fat through the beta agonist, you're gonna you basically you like you you're you're uh, sparing glucose and you're like you're protecting your muscles. Anyways, that's when they usually get like a heart attack or stroke or something like that. It's when they actually look really unhealthy. They get these big bellies, but also really bulky, beefy, like uh, burly-looking men. They turn out to be actually much healthier than when when they look lean and cut. Um, it's usually you know beyond certain level of cutness and definition. It's usually a sign that you know your your body fat percentage, if it's that low, I mean you're doing something that's that's probably pushing the body to the limits. Great stuff. Let me do a little advertisement here. IdealabsDC.com, Georgie's supplement company, and we're giving away a bottle of Tokovit, which is uh, vitamin E. If you go to bitshoot.com slash Danny Roddy and just leave a comment on the last video. So the last video is number 39. And so just click on that and pause the video and then just leave a comment <laughs> down here and then I'll, I'll choose uh, a winner. And Dylan Morrison or Morris, I forget what it was. You have won the bottle of Tokovit. So email me at danny at dannyreddy.com. And, and uh, did I mention subscribe? We got like a, uh, over like 70 new subscribers on BitChute. And so I'm just doing this because, you know, we're talking freely. <laughs> we're talking about <laughs> things that are going to be um, polarizing, you know, and and I imagine given those the way things are going, you just simply will not be able to talk about this stuff soon. Again, I don't think our, our channel, is, channel is big or anything. I don't think we're target. I just think the algorithm will at some point uh, eliminate channels that are talking about vaccines and stuff because it's so important for the technocratic future. You just uh, gave me an idea what to talk to Ray about. You know, he's part of the silent generation, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to ask him, like, so so given that this has already happened in the United States history, an entire generation basically saw that they can be persecuted, prosecuted, potentially even killed for their, I don't know, I guess, leftist views about, during the McCartyism, right? Mm -hmm. And then the entire generation decided to keep their mouths shut. How can we even talk about freedom of speech? <laughs> and second, what made them like what made subsequent generations change their mind? Like, was there like a relaxation of the climate after the McCartyism? Because if you look the way I look at it, like the Cold War only intensified up until like the collapse of the Soviet Union. You had the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 60s. Right. Mm -hmm. And in the 70s, there were a few incidents with like uh, people on both sides, of the United States and USSR thinking mistakenly that like nuclear mis missiles have been fi uh, fired at the at their homeland and they were deep in uh, under you know in sitting in these bunkers and then like a false alarm came through and they just by like a, I don't know like it was really nerve-wracking to read it was basically three people against one saying we should fire the missile and you need four to file to fire it and basically that person said absolutely no this is a false alarm and these three people like pull out their guns and threaten to like shoot that because they do have protocols for that, right? So we came fairly close to not, to annihilation in the sixties and seventies, possibly even the eighties. So, but then it 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 somehow seems like with the boomer generation, um, like things reversed. People like just kind of like decided they can you know talk about whatever they want to and not really face uh, you know many consequences. So wanted to know what he thinks led to that change and why isn't. Um, the the fact that the, why isn't the existence of the silent generation more widely publicized in the land of the free? Apparently, we've already had a period where entire generation decided that the you know the First Amendment it's really it's not worth much when you have a person like McCarty in charge. Yeah, what well, it was? Dave McGowan wrote a book about how the whole '60s counterculture was completely led by the the CIA away CIA, from yeah. any kind yeah. of um, relevant anti-war movement. And then uh, uh, Jay Dyer, who I interviewed in a f uh, many podcasts ago, 
I, I think he said somewhere like the boomers were the most like psyop generation. <laughs> like they were yeah. under so many things. And I'm sure millennials and, and zoomers are similar, you know, with the whole um, equitable delivery of vaccine and this like pseudo morality that is um, it, clearly some kind of fill in for any kind of uh, uh, religiosity a person has. Like the, the culture is going to tell you what's right and wrong. Right. Um, they but, call it now horizontal totalitarianism. There was a, another article on, on Hacker News. Basically, they're saying like in the for the entire history of humanity, you always had like this gr- one or two great dictators, and they would like exercise vertical control and crush the plebs. Mm-hmm. And now they've gotten really due to the availability of technology, they've gotten really smart about it. Now they're poisoning the minds of a significant portion of the population, and then those are the people. They're your neighbors, your family, and they're coming to you and basically like harassing you and through sometimes destroying your life and there's it's how do you how do you run away from your family i don't know how many people have seen the movie traffic with michael douglas uh it was like a 2001 movie it was about the war on drugs and actually the it's a really great movie i think it, uh, just for one main message is eventually the drug czar gave up his position because he thought that the dr- war on drugs is unwinnable and he said the war on drugs is a, is a war we we, uh, we can win and we must win the war on drugs is a war where many of the enemy are your own family, and I don't know how you launch war on your own family. And he quit. Uh, so I think we're getting to that point. Is like basically, but now, like the enemy is our friends and our families and people we know and people we care about. And, you know, like we got into the point, really breaking point here, where like basically we cannot relate on a very basic level. If you can't relate with the people that are closest to you, you become very vulnerable to manipulation through all kinds of media and like, uh, you know, whether you call them like government intelligence or whatnot, they give an alternative, right? They're saying, oh, Danny, don't worry. Yes, mom and daddy don't love you, but guess what? We have a nice family here and, you know, there are many kinds of family. <laughs> so you can choose to, you know, be part of this family. And that's it. At that point, you lost. I mean, they control the narrative and, and you know, continue to like radicalize you. For all we'll talk about the, radic- the self-radicalization of Muslim terrorists, what about the self-radicalization of the the entire youth youth population in the Western world? Like there's certain topics you just cannot discuss because you will be physically assaulted on the street and sometimes the police won't even move a finger. What's worse, in some countries it's, it's even be codified in, a, in law that that basically questioning certain things is illegal. You can't even talk about these things. Um, so, so it's just, you know, I don't know. I don't think we're going in a, in a very good direction as a society because, you know, before we was all of us together against the system. But now we have become the system and then we're uh, we're being played against each other. And for some reason, most people refuse to even consider that that may be a possibility. Uh, you may hear like fleeting talk about like, oh, yeah, the elite is doing using divide and conquer. Right. But it's gone beyond divide and conquer. They're not simply dividing us to conquer us. They're pitting us against each other to like literally get at each other's throats and and completely forget about their agenda. They don't even need to to conquer. We are conquering each other. Yeah, Whitney Webb said uh, it was like a panopticon, I guess, that was set up so everybody yeah. watches everybody else. Yep. And then she also said there are many things that like Democrats and Republicans would agree on, but are just never chat about. Like, I seriously doubt like either like the craziest Republican or the craziest Democrat would agree that they want uh, like a technocratic uh, slave grid type of thing. Like if you laid it out and said, this is what the, the future is going to look like. I seriously doubt they would agree, agree to that. You know, maybe some people would disagree with me, but um, oh, the Did, one- didn't Ray said about said like no American president has ever 
uh, officially questioned death penalty, nuclear weapons, uh, reigning in corporations, uh, I mean, allowing corporations to do whatever the heck they want, uh, health care or anything like that. So basically all of these things, uh, cost of education or quality of education, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, quality of the food system. Mm-hmm. No president has ever discussed these things because they're beyond discussion. So if you want to get elected, you basically, you, you, you put any, you raise questions about any of these things, a powerful enough group will come out of nowhere and probably destroy your chances of getting elected or physically eliminate you just like Kennedy. Yeah. Or maybe a better uh, example is like getting money out of politics. Like who thinks that's a good idea? <laughs> exactly. you know? exactly. um, OK, I just wanted to reference uh, the 1953 speech by Alan Dulles uh, where he said the battle. I couldn't get the exact quote because the Google blocked the page. I guess the quote was on. But he literally says the battle for the future is in men's minds. And so just to back up what we said there. Um, where was I? Uh, Idealabsdc.com, bitshoot.com slash Danny Roddy, just in case we get terminated one day. <laughs> and then I and I do coaching on patreon.com slash Danny Roddy. And you can follow us on all of the things and I won't go over them. Um, do you do you want to talk about anything Idealabs? Really? Uh- the, well, I want to talk about another called the earwax testing because oh, yeah, yeah. I think that's like a pretty cool one. So, I mean, I'm sure you remember G Ball and, and like in his assault on the Who? forum and G Ball do it. German. His actually first name is German. Um, and um, uh, he kept pushing the, the hair tests for like minerals, for steroids, and all these kind of things. And then I think several people asked Ray, he said he thinks like nails would be a lot more accurate, right? And now, uh, but very few companies are doing uh, uh, hair or nail analysis, and they're charging, you know, uh, a pretty, uh, you know, pretty pretty high price for that. Uh, so it's it's probably not something that's 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 uh, feasible for most people to do on a regular basis. The good thing about those tests is that they're measured. There are seem to be measuring long term, um, basic concentrations, long term exposure to some of the steroids. Like if you want to know your uh, average cortisol levels over the last two three months. I mean, your only options with a blood test is basically going and getting pricked every at least once a week. But then they're also saying that's not really it's not it doesn't work because after the first week you're starting to elevate the cortisol levels simply because of the stressfulness of the blood draw. Because you only have two arms. I mean, like unless they start pricking you like a, I don't know if, where else can they find a you know decent enough vein. But even then, the levels of LDH lactate dehydrogenase have been shown to rise if you get more than two venous blood draws per month right so at best you can do it twice a month and then it's really not enough it's not it's not it's not uh spaced frequently enough to get like a good idea of what you what your really your cortisol exposure is so it looks like hair and nails do that but they're extremely expensive and now this study says that earwax which is extremely easy to collect uh, is able to provide is basically can serve as an alternative and in fact is a better is a better basically uh, it's a better source of information about at least cortisol, but they're saying the study authors are saying like they see no reason why testing other steroid levels in earwax would not also work extremely well as well. So all you need to do is basically they had actually used uh, what is it called uh, what what do you call these ear swab like the with the cotton thing. Uh, there's like a special brand that's very popular in the Cotonel or something. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, something like that. So all you need to do is like do a swab of the ears. And then probably dip in like fairly – like 70% rubbing alcohol. Get like a little bit of rubbing alcohol from the store and like do the ear swap for a few days in a row. Collect as much wax as you can. Dip it in the alcohol. You know, shake a little bit until it dissolves. And that's it. And just ship it off to any lab that does any chemical analysis with mass spectroscopy slash HPLC. And it should be able to like do the analysis for all of these 
for pretty much anything you want. I mean, it doesn't have to be limited to uh, to the steroids. I'm actually planning on doing something like that myself and checking for things like magnesium, uh, you know, so the minerals, uh, vitamin D, you know, just to see how they correlate with the blood levels. Uh, it'll be very interesting. It's a non-invasive method, um, and basically they're saying that it's even more reliable than hair. I don't know if it's more reliable than nails, but if it's more reliable than hair and it's dirt, well, not dirt cheap, but on par with blood blood test levels, they're probably going to charge you uh, what you're going to pay a la carte if you didn't have an insurance, if you go and get like a blood test for vitamin D, you'll probably be about the same price if you get a, a year swab and send it to a, chem- a regular chemical lab and say test for vitamin D levels in that liquid. Amazing. Straight from the source. Uh, what... Uh, what Let's, other articles? Yeah, let me see. Go on the uh, second we, page. We had, uh, probably in the backlog, right? So we did the fasting. Yeah, yeah. We did the earwax, DHT. Uh, lowering. Okay. About coronavirus. Oh, uh, I think that's another interesting one. That lowering estrogen prevents memory decline in menopausal females. Mm-hmm. Well, how can – first, I think this, again, exposes menop- that menopause is not an actual – state of, of estrogen deficiency. Because if you already have an estrogen deficiency, how can administering an, an aromatase inhibitor <laughs> improve memory, right? These females are supposed to be already deficient in estrogen. Um, and this immediately reminded me of the study that showed that administering an aromatase inhibitor can actually stop um, treatment-resistant epilepsy or seizures of any etiology that are completely resistant to any kind of therapy, Right. So estrogen, simply administering aromatase inhibitor was able to stop seizures of any etiology. So there again, uh, you know, uh, since females have a drastically higher incidence of dementia, such as Alzheimer's disease, if we have here that lowering estrogen synthesis through an aromatase inhibitor prevents the memory decline, doesn't that immediately implicate estrogen in Alzheimer's? Uh, and again, corroborate what Ray has been saying for, I don't know, decades, saying like, why is the why is the great discrepancy, the higher ratio of all these diseases in males versus females has never attracted even the question of are hormones involved? I mean, you may hear something every once in a while mentioned like, uh, you know, just very, very uh, uh, briefly, fleetingly. And usually it's like, oh, it's a complicated picture. We There's so many hormones. We have no idea which one may be contributing. But you've never heard anybody even raise the point of, wow, maybe estrogen is the cause. Why? Because we still, most of endocrinology and gynecology and neurology is under the myth that menopause is a state of estrogen deficiency. So under that assumption, just like the essential nature of the essential fatty acids, for as long as that thing continues, nobody's going to question estrogen may actually be a cause of that. And another one which I thought was pretty interesting is that estrogen can both cause and exacerbate lupus. Again, uh, my wife actually worked in a clinical trial uh, up until recently for rheumatoid arthritis, and most of the doctors that are treating it were also treating patients with lupus. And she spoke to some of the most renowned lupus and RA doctors on the East Coast and brought up the issue of hormones and whatnot. Uh, most of them were, were dismissive, and the ones that weren't like basically said, impossible, uh, this has been tried for so long, uh, if estrogen was the cause, we would have seen that lupus basically the incidence declines in in uh, um, what do they call it uh, uh, in menopause, right after menopause. But we're not seeing that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they all dismissed it. Yet there's there's studies upon studies upon studies showing that uh, so you can actually cause lupus out of nowhere just by administering a slightly slightly higher than physiological dose of estrogen for a week. You do that and you get lupus, right? 
Of course, there's also the connection with the microbiome and uh, lactobacilli. I think we've talked about that as well. But guess what? If you get actually the, lac- the uh, lactobacilli, even though they're better for you in terms of the um, in terms of the uh, like lowering the amount of endotoxin you produce, they have actually been known to uh, to increase the colonization of the of the of the of the gut with uh, with fungi and sometimes even yeast that are producing estrogen. So that may actually be the connection between the lactobacilli overgrowth and the estrogen. They actually tend to grow hand in hand, at least when it comes to the GI tract. And recent studies found that the GI tract is actually a major steroid-producing organ on par with the skin. So if you got the wrong bacteria there, you may very well be producing tremendous amounts of estrogen, which will rarely show up on the blood test. They'll actually be intracellular, inside tissue estrogens, and you only you only see them, you know, basically once the estrogen-dependent disease, such as lupus, manifests themselves. You watched that video I sent you about uh, the first one, correct, or no? Uh, which one? The oh, yeah, li- the question? liver question. Maybe yeah, we I did, play, yeah, yeah. play the liver question because you did watch that one already, and then we could answer it. You want to do that? Uh, I, mean, I already know the question, so like, oh, okay. you want to play it so yeah, people can hear it? Or? Okay. <laughs> okay, so this is what we tried to do. We had a bunch of amazing questions, and again, I'm uh, physically ill from not being able to play them, but we, we will be able to get to this one because uh, Georgie did watch it already. So give me a, please let me know if you can hear this. This one's from Christoph. Thank you, Christoph. Sincerely appreciate it. Thank you for all the entries. They were excellent, uh, but okay, look. Can you hear this? I no, I cannot. Well, at least the listeners can. I mean, uh, I already know the question. Oh shit! And then, depending on your answer, my second question. Okay, big, huge fail. <laughs> you guys, you guys didn't hear anything. Okay. Okay. Never mind. <laughs> Even less worked out than I thought it was. <laughs> okay. But, oh. Okay. They did hear at the end. Oh. Th- maybe that was the problem. Okay. Let me try this again. You guys should be able to hear it now. Okay, guys. OBS is extremely complicated, and I'm not that smart. Okay. So, hide Chrome. Okay. Christoph's question again. Starting. Hello, now. Danny and George. So my question would be about the liver. So I'm interested, what are, what are for you guys good liver in, enzyme numbers like the ELT? And from, what, from, from which point on you would say, okay, it's a, yeah, they are elevated? Because I feel like that's a question of interpretation. And then depending on your answer, my second question would be, um, how would you interpret it if this, like the ELT number, would be slightly elevated for the last five months. So what would that be a sign of? Or how would you interpret it? And then <laughs> ongoing yeah. to that, what do you think about choline supplementation or vitamin E supplementation maybe to treat the elevated slightly The question elevated is why am, I, why am I not hearing it? Is it maybe better to try it with a reduced calorie intake or maybe doing some more sports or is it a digestive 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 problem so um 
I'm really looking forward to your answer. And I'm sorry for my English. And hope you guys are doing well. And I'm a big fan. Okay. Okay, finished. Thank you, Christoph. I don't know about you guys. I like these questions. People are saying it's, it's strange. No, I, the Christoph, thank you for that. I think this brings a human dynamic here to the mix. And so by the next stream, we'll have this fully working. So Georgie can hear the questions and we'll go through them. But I, I really enjoy this. Okay. So the question was the ALT, why, yeah. why do the liver, liver enzymes increase? And what do you do about this? Is it um, related to a choline deficiency, a vitamin E deficiency? Should he reduce his calorie intake? Should he increase his sport? What What is your take on this? So I, I'm pretty sure he, he, this is the person who posted on the forum. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, he's actually, he had he checked all of his liver enzymes and only ALT was elevated. The other ones were normal. And ALT was only about two times higher than the than the upper limit of normal. A couple of things. First, if you look at Broder Barnes's writings, he said several times that basically if your liver enzymes are, actually I think Celia did as well, if your liver enzymes are elevated, but not more than three times the upper limit of normal, that's actually not a bad sign. It's a sign that it's just like HDL. If you if your endotoxin rises, HDL should rise, right? Um, and you know, it's it's a good sign, even though HDL by itself is not actually a very beneficial factor. So just because the liver enzymes have risen, have risen. Um, as long as they're less than the three times the upper limit of normal, I wouldn't really worry about it. I mean, if you actually go and read some of the studies, and I've talked to doctors and seen some some athletes who abuse certain drugs, so doctors really don't really start to get worried about your liver until your ALT starts hitting 600 or above. And it's very common for people with so-called acute mild liver failure to have ALT above 1,000. Um, like once you reach the several thousands, then you're in trouble. Um, but basically 600 is probably going to be called subclinical, like uh, mild uh, hepatic insufficiency. Um, uh, 1000 or above will be called like acute clinical, uh, right? And then like anything over 2000 will probably be called severe acute clinical uh, hepatic insufficiency. The other thing is that since the other liver enzymes are not elevated, I don't think this is really a sign of much except um, basically, it's hard to do, differentiate, uh, but you know, a good enzyme to use to differentiate it will be GGT as well. So there's several liver enzymes, and gamma glutamyl transferase (GGT) is the one that's basically used as the very, uh, very sensitive sensor um, uh, uh, to like uh, whether, whether you've consumed something that's acutely hepatotoxic. So drinking even one shot of alcohol, like one shot of strong liquor, acutely raises GGT without raising ALT, AST, or, or ALP. Uh, also, ALT is not only expressed in the liver. It's expressed in the muscle. It's expressed in the pancreas. It's expressed in the heart. And I think it, some studies show it's also expressed in the brain. So because the, the elevation is so mild, it's really, and the other liver enzymes are actually not elevated, I would say at this point, there isn't actually evidence that there is this is coming from the liver. And acute exercise, such as, uh, running for 30 minutes is known to actually raise all of these enzymes, all of the quote-unquote liver ones, and raise them to several times over the upper limit of normal. I've experienced this myself. Uh, drinking more than one or two drinks per day, that can do it pretty easily, right? Uh, being under acute stress. Remember the studies we discussed just last week of basically vitamin D protecting the liver from the toxic effects of cortisol? 
So cortisol can actually directly start destroying your liver, not destroying, but like making it leak these these enzymes into the blood. And it just could be uh, because of the mild elevation and of only one enzyme, it could be exercise. So it may not even be coming from your liver. It could be due to mild stress, maybe coming from the liver, but due to mild stress. It could be due to one or two drinks of alcohol, right? Things like that. So at this point, this is I wouldn't worry about this. I mean, I'm not a doctor, so it shouldn't be it shouldn't be taken as a professional advice. But my guess is that even your doctor wouldn't worry and probably recommend staying away from alcohol and and and. Uh, you know, excessive stress, and it will probably the doctor will probably want to retest in a month or so. Um, if the enzyme comebacks comes back elevated again, um, then my guess would be, um, and again, I'll try to test the GGT because that will tell you if it's really coming from the liver or not. That that enzyme is very specific for the liver. It's very sensitive to like doing even mildly hepatotoxic activities or ingesting mildly hepatotoxic things. Um, so if it's confirmed to be coming from the liver, then in my in my view, it's most likely due to mild fattening up of the liver, which is probably due to like excessive lipolysis. Uh, it's very common. Uh, NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, is present in at least 30% of the Western population. If you add in NASH or N-cirrhosis and all the other uh, bile duct blockages and whatnot, disease of the gallbladder. You're looking at like 75% of the population, Western population, having some kind of a disease of the hepatobiliary tract. Um, so, so in all likelihood, is 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 due to if it's confirmed to be coming from the liver, it's probably due to a mild fattening up of the liver. In which case, lower doses of niacinamide and vitamin E and aspirin, either one of those three or even the three combined should be able to like reduce the lipolysis to a level that allows the liver to recover. Uh, saturated fat, such as coconut oil, uh, has a really beneficial effect on the liver. Confirmed in uh, cirrhotic alcoholics who basically, once they were given uh, butter and or coconut oil, they were able to continue to abuse alcohol and drink to the, as much as they wanted to while their liver actually fully recovered. Um, so that will be another thing to try um, vitamin K and caffeine are really, really strongly protective of the liver. Uh, in fact, one recent study said that caffeine should be considered as an intervention for all liver diseases up to and including moderate, mild to moderate cirrhosis, which is really like almost like the last stage. Liver cancer will be the last one, right? But cirrhosis, again, is one of these diseases that medicine considers um, irreversible. Um, a study with p patients with HIV who already have a compromised liver function and compromised liver health found that I think it was 600 to 800 units of vitamin E daily reverse non-alcoholic steatohepatitis in the majority of them. Actually reversed it, simply cured it, for, you know, using another word. So you really have many options here. Um, you know, of course, avoiding the PUFA, right? Uh, eating gelatin. The glycine and, in general, like the anti-inflammatory uh, amino acids in gelatin are really protective of the liver as well. So there are many, many options, but I, at this point, I wouldn't go overboard or even, you know, it's not really, I would just wait, maybe truly wait for a month. And if you do the retest, then try to test the AL, again, the, the liver enzymes plus the GGT. And the doctors usually don't do the GGT unless you ask for it. But if you ask for it, you know, they'll do it because they will agree that if ALT is elevated, the doctor, if he or she is worth their salt, they, they should be asking you to do this test to do a differential diagnosis and find out if it's coming from the liver or somewhere else. So it's really not worrying to me at this point, considering it's only one enzyme. We don't know if it's really the liver, and it's only elevated like two times higher than the upper limit of normal. 
In regards to uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, the through line through everything would be flipping the redox balance of the low energy liver. Yeah. And that's what is that de novo synthesizing fatty acids and yep. accumulating the ectopic fat loss or whatever. Yep. And that's actually, if you go to my blog on page two, there's a, there's a study that there's a blog post about a study that says that alcohol damages the liver by lowering, primarily by lowering the NAD to the NADH ratio. Mm -hmm. And subsequent, uh, I'm sorry, shouldn't say subsequent prior studies going back to the 1960s demonstrated that you can reverse even very advanced fatty liver disease by simply improving, increasing the levels of ATP. Um, and they did it by administering inosine, which is like a reverse a breakdown of ATP, but also a reverse precursor. And or also, but because the levels of ATP are extremely highly correlated with the NAD to the NADH ratio, if you raise the NAD to the NADH ratio by taking niacinamide or methylene blue or any kind of like an oxidizing agent that shifts the balance towards oxidation, progesterone, thyroid, right? You, you, you should be able to achieve about the same thing. Yeah. And this is why the argument singling out a single macronutrient are kind of retarded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. What else? Uh, did, we didn't get to the mask. Uh, <laughs> one. Did you want to talk about that? Oh, I'm already getting comments on Twitter that I'll get banned for that. So let's let's go. <laughs> I, I don't even know if those comments were threats or basically saying like, don't post about this because I was kind of worried about the orange juice as well because it's it's it sounds like uh, inflammatory enough to like draw the wrong kind of attention. It's like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Like promoting pseudoscience here, like drinking orange juice for this terrible disease. Did you want to talk about this one? <laughs> yeah, the mass. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's fairly straightforward. There's just several studies in an article in the Reuters of all places, which basically says that the latest study, which was from Denmark, demonstrated that at best you're getting no protection. And they actually, they actually saw uh, either a 46% reduction or a 23% increase in infection, depending on how you analyze the data. So at best, it's a toss, right? Uh, at, you know, uh, at worst, you're actually looking at an increase in infection, which some studies have actually warned us about, because you're doing rebreeding of these particles, right? And as if you're if you're in a in an area where there's a lot of people that are infected that are around you, many of these viral particles can actually get caught in the mask, and it's usually easier to get infected when you have a concentrated amount of them in the mask and you're constantly breeding them in. Then, and if you're breeding open air, because there's also the, there's an air current. And there is a higher chance that the viral particles will be blown away before they reach you in amount sufficient, high enough to actually cause an infection. When you have a mask, it's okay if there aren't that many infected people around you. But if there are, which brings us me to another, uh, brings us to another point, which is the study that showed that pre-existing, uh, you know, rates of infection found in 30% of the population in Italy back in September of 2019. Which means that at this point, in all likelihood, most of the people around us are probably carrying that virus and/or have already had it. So in that case, if you, if we're wearing a mask and you're in a closed location where you have a few people that are like sneezing and coughing and breathing your way, uh, even if they're wearing masks, there's actually a higher chance potentially of you getting infected because those particles get captured by the mask and kept there. If you don't have the mask, there's a much better chance that the it's just the current of the air and the overall ventilation will actually prevent the infection unless somebody's directly sneezing in your face, which they shouldn't be doing anyways. Yeah, I think this is just the the masks are taking advantage of the not that I understand everything about physiology, but they're taking advantage of how we're all you know, we're all ignorant, but how ignorant the public is about these types of things and physiology and um, 
I mean, the scary part is none of what I said in my post, and actually, like, it's most of it is quotes from the actual studies. Uh, but you know, I've I've already seen uh, people getting banned simply for quoting studies because you know Twitter can decide, or Facebook, or like YouTube can decide that you're promoting things that are that are indirect, uh, that are called, that are in conflict with the officials uh, with the official position of the health authorities. But there, it's not me that is in conflict with the health authorities. I'm simply reporting on third party um, like third party opinion, which is medical opinion by professionals, right? I mean, if that's not allowed, then we then we'll probably at some point they probably won't allow us to seek second opinion from another doctor. They'll say, "Oh no, that's that's fake news." Well, Once you get diagnosed, Danny, you're psychotic, and that's the way it is. And like, don't even dare go to another psychiatrist. Well, you're pointing out their crime. You're pointing out the scam <laughs> that they're running. I'm sorry if I've said this before, but the thing that's so uh, kind of annoying is I have like close friends that are hor- like very scared of the the virus, you know. But but again, it's like industry poisons our air. They poison our food. We're sitting in electro smog, like um, unimaginable levels of electro smog and EMF and things. And our and our livelihoods and our vitality have been robbed from us. And now they're saying you have to worry about this virus. And and people that I know are uh, don't understand that their quality of life has been for a very long time taken from them. You know what I mean? And so it's just like the irony that now they're worrying about their health being affected by this this virus, but not before that is just like the, the serious uh, headache that this whole thing. Well, I think that's what they actually it probably explains it. It's an outlet, right? They're seeing that their health is declining, but it's like they couldn't really pin it down to any specific factor because the entire environment is murderous. So now they have the perfect outlet of their anger and frustration. It's the virus, right? So they're going to blame everything on it. Have you noticed how the news have changed? Now the virus can cause neurological damage. The virus can cause cancer. The virus can cause heart disease. All of these long, they call them long COVID symptoms, right? So before you know it, they're going to say it's the COVID that decimated the health of the of the young people. And guess what? We got the vaccine. If you take the vaccine, everything will be hunky-dory. Yeah, murderous is the word I was looking for. Why? What need is there to worry about a murderous environment when doctors are industrially equipped, equipped yeah. to act as lifesavers? It's like Ivan Illich was such a prophet. That medical nemesis book is like, there are so many, when I was like looking for something to post and I was like, oh, I'm sure I'll find something in medical nemesis. There were so many things I could have posted because everything he was saying was so highly relevant to what we were. Uh, I don't know if I, I might have moved the quote, but he, he said something else like, um, you know, maybe I have it. Um, uh, per, uh, preservation of the sick life of medically dependent people in an unhealthy environment is the principal business of the medical profession. But uh, he had one other one that I can't believe. Oh, once a society organizes for a preventive disease hunt. It gives epidemic proportions to diagnosis. This yeah. ultimate triumph. Let me um, give me one second. Let me screenshot this because it's really that good. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Once society organizes for a preventive disease hunt, it gives epidemic proportions to diagnosis. This ultimate triumph of therapeutic culture turns into the it turns the independence of the average healthy person into an intolerable form of deviance. And so, again, probably quote him all day. Um, 
yeah, with that, <laughs> were there any other articles um, you want to get to? Did we talk about the asthma can be caused by the air filters? Because now we're seeing, like, I'm seeing buildings all over the place here advertise, especially the office buildings, saying, hey, come back, because they've been decimated by by businesses leaving, right? So now so now they're saying, well, of course, they, they think it's big, businesses are not coming back because of the vi- scare, being scared of the virus, when in reality, most of these businesses that left are simply bankrupt. But they're thinking they can lure them back by saying, oh, we're stalling this incredible air filtering system that basically will prevent the air from ever coming in and ever going out. It's going to circulate it inside and completely purify it to the point where it's so sterile, you'll be so thrilled, right? Well, guess what? These fine, like, fine-grain filters that they're using are actually crushing bacteria, and then the bacteria releases the endotoxin in the air. So this study found out that you can get asthma by, you know, by depending on the, like how, how fi- fine grain the filter that you're using in your air filter is. Now, if these filters, and it looks like they're installed in most of the commercial grade air conditioning systems, such as if you have a central air conditioning like in your building, um, and the building is like, I don't know, fairly modern, if it's downtown in some big city, um, or it's like it was fairly new, like fairly fairly recently built, chances are it, it does have those filters they can basically rupture the bacteria bacteria wall um, and and the bacteria wall, and then you know you get endotoxin floating around. So if you know if that if that tiny well I don't know if it's tiny or not, but so we have a sufficient amount of endotoxin not only inside of us but floating around in the air. So there may be another reason to like not really spend that much time indoors, but go outside because I know many people who are saying there's something about being in an office that's that's just giving me like the feeling that I'm breathing poison and they can't really like uh, articulate it because they don't know what they're looking for right uh, but you know I know many people who the moment they go inside of a like an office building they actually get an, the ones who are asthmatics they get an asthma attack the ones that are not asthmatics they start getting allergic attacks like they're sneezing or they basically their sinuses swell um, and they they can never pin it down to anything specific, but now we know endotoxin can cause all of these symptoms. And guess what? If you if you inhaling this endotoxin long term, uh, which most people in an office used to do for like eight at least eight plus hours a day, um, I don't really know what the long term effects of that would be. I, I I would bet that they're not good for your lungs uh, because the lungs are highly highly sensitive. And now we're seeing that with the COVID virus, right? It's really the lungs that are basically the site of most of the lethal developments as a result of this disease. Um, and it's known that endotoxin can cause these complications because in the animal studies, where they're now trying to compare the effectiveness of anti-inflammatory drugs, the control group that basically they want to have a control group with a similar lung pathology, the way it gets induced is by getting the animals to either breed endotoxin, uh, endotoxin-filled air or getting injected with an endotoxin in the lungs or in the trachea. So it means that endotoxin can cause virtually the same pathology as COVID-19, or at least like the severe case of it. So, um, I mean, I'm not trying to promote a conspiracy theory here. I'm saying that over time, if you're sitting in, in these modern office buildings equipped with the latest and greatest of air filtration technology, you may be getting yourself, like giving yourself a serious lung disease. And now in combination with COVID, right, if you have the virus and you know, let's say even if you're fairly healthy, but you walk inside of that, you know, of that office building and start in, inhaling endotoxin, you may get like, like you may exacerbate the disease, even though it would have been fairly benign for you if you're a young and healthy person, where it normally wouldn't have happened if you didn't have this endotoxin floating around in the air. So I wonder if 
how many of those younger people that we've seen, because of course the media promotes like, oh, this person 25, they died from the COVID virus, right? Um, you know, of course they never tell you about the pre-existing conditions, but some of these people, like rare, it's rare, but they did look fairly young and healthy. I'm wondering whether something like that, like in a contributing factor of the murderous environment, to quote Ivan Illich, isn't what actually did them in. Yes, the virus is there. Yes, the virus gave him the infection. Yes, the virus gave him to the point of having a flu. But once you start inhaling and detoxing, you you start you know you you start getting into into lethal territory, which reminds me of that old study, which I'm sure you've seen that I posted in 2014 that. HIV cannot cause AIDS without the co-presence of a significant amount of endotoxin in the blood. And it just so happens that the most reliable biomarker that predicts death from AIDS is something called soluble CD14, SCD14, which is, I didn't know, is the official test for endotoxin exposure. So there you go. So you can you can certainly get a lethal disease by having a infect, infection with a retrovirus, right? progress from HIV to AIDS and become deadly simply when you when you basically get exposed to a you know more of a, like higher than optimal amount not that there's any optimal amount of endotoxin but higher than you know than, than than what your body can handle I just don't see a reason why the same thing would not happen in a building that has a sufficiently endotoxin filled uh, air. This actually makes sense to me. There was a grocery store in Mexico that every single time, uh, almost instantaneously, when I'd walk into it, it had a bizarre smelling air. But I'd start getting like itchy eyes uh, within like pretty quickly of being in that building. And something I did put together because I went to this grocery store so often was that when I was taking vitamin D, I would either not have that that reaction or I'd have greatly reduced. uh, It wouldn't be as intense and noticeable. Um, Okay, with that. Uh, any other last party words uh, about Idea Labs, um, George? I mean, we just keep working on these on these chemicals with the uh, with uh, the Bulgarian group um, and trying to test them in animals. But um, at this point, everything is shut down in Europe, which is it's a bummer, you know. I also have a lab in Taiwan that I work with, but they also seem to be um, kind of like they've gone silent on on some of the projects that we proposed. Uh, I wanted to finish up the, the study with prostate cancer in DHT, which was shut down when China shut down earlier this year. Um, and I've been trying to resume that. And, you know, I guess at this point I have to repeat it because it's considered it, it will not be publishable if we simply pick up from where we stop. Uh, I mean, all these animals got killed and the study couldn't complete. So now I have to basically redo it. So I'm trying to do that thing again from scratch. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'll keep pushing um, because I think, you know, it, it, at least, you know, if we get published something on DHT, I think that will get some attention. But at this point, with all the, with all the censorship and everything else going on, I think we'll just invite both you and I and our Twitter accounts and YouTube channel getting outrightly banned. <laughs> That's how we know we're doing something right, right? Speaking of, okay, subscribe to the BitChute, leave a comment, uh, and the, so, uh, click on the number 39 episode, so that's one behind this episode. I will immediately listen to this, create the timestamps. Please give this episode a like, that uh, even though YouTube is a pretty much dead platform, that still helps us out because we have such a small show. We have such a great audience. You know, we have 120 people watching right now. That still blows my mind. We always have a great chat. I like look at the chat to see if I need to like do anything. And I barely ever do, you know? What happened with the psychos that that Steph used to used to rule in? I I don't I think they must have found some other channel to bother because I just don't think we really get um, that many crazy people. I I think we have a a good, a good, uh, 
I don't want to call them fans or followers. We have a good group of people that are interested in our content. And so, yeah, feel very fortunate. I am extremely bummed that I couldn't get these questions working. I was very excited about that. So I will figure out how to feed the audio to Georgie. If anybody's interested, I didn't actually get the audio equipment. So it took more than 10 days to, to arrive to me. But by the time next week, which we are talking to Mr. Ray Pete, I, I should have that working. And um, any, uh, I can't think of anything else. Any anything else to, left to say? I don't know. Stay sane. That's all <laughs> I have to say. It's becoming crazier by the minute. Um, you know, if anything, I think everybody at this point realizes that um, it's there is probably no no mainstream media outlet out there that can be trusted about anything. Uh, if anything, these elections showed you that the most reliable portion that we, we, everybody thought on both sides of the spectrum probably thought up until now that, you know, if you can trust media, one thing it would be to do polls, right? Uh, that was so widely off the mark that both sides of the political spectrum said, oh, wow, we either should stop publishing these or do a much better job because we're undermining faith in democracy. And I thought to myself, what democracy? <laughs> this is like, it's been, I think people have given up on this long time ago. Well, we'll see. Yeah, good stuff. Another downer episode. <laughs> um, okay, so I, you know, I forgot to mention generativeenergy.com. Okay, so go to this. You can see ways to listen to the show, the schedule, and so next Friday, and then the timestamp archive, which is uh, pretty useful. So if you click on the last episode, you can see the YouTube, and eventually I'll put the other ways to watch, and then you can go through the timestamps of that specific episode that you want to watch. Um, oh, one last thing I wanted to yeah. say, it's, it's in, regard, in regard to vitamin D supplementation, which many people have trouble with oral route, right? And I know Ray has said he uses, uh, I think he's given com conflicting um, reports. Sometimes he says he uses it orally, sometimes, you know, puts it on the gums, or like uh, puts it on, on his skin, right? Once a week. Uh, once daily. Just to clarify, I think he says if you can tolerate it orally, it's okay. But then right. he, he always says for himself that he uses it on his skin. Right. And then like several people, I think, emailed him and said, look, I've been taking 5,000 units daily and I'm not seeing any changes in, in D levels, in like the actual serum levels. Um, and he uh, uh, he mentioned, uh, he said, it, he didn't quote the study, but I found a study that confirms that, that basically like if you're carrying a little bit of extra weight, you, the volume of distribution, in other words, the volume of your body is higher. So actually, like a you know, you probably need to take a higher dose for longer to see a to see like a, a really change, a significant change in your vitamin D levels. Um, and also, the reason I mention is that I receive by now I've received reports from at least seven different people using different products. Yes, one of them is ours, but they also use the one from Thorn and a bunch of different liquid products in all kinds of solvents. Some like Thorn, I think, is in MCT oil. Ours is in ethanol and, and fat. And then basically a bunch of other ones out there. I think most of them are fat-based, right? And um, I have a blog post about applying to the navel. And then all of these seven people said they did before and after tests with, with several brands. And basically, even as little as 2,000 units, uh, which is like two drops usually, uh, like if you take like a fairly common uh, brand out there, I think Torn is like, you know, a thousand uh, IU per drop. There are products that have 5,000 per drop, but like 2,000 drops per day in the na na uh, navel for one week quadruple their levels. So there's, so, and that's from people that are not even clients. One of them is a client. So, uh, but basically six other people. So I'm not promoting our product, but liquid products in oil or ethanol. Uh, seem to work really, really well through the navel and being able to raise serum levels 
uh, even when these people, like despite the fact these people tried much higher doses orally and did not have uh, did not have results. So if you have an issue like with raising vitamin levels, you may want to try that route. Three other people with inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the studies showing that really high doses of vitamin D can actually stop auto, autoimmune conditions in their tract. And they tried the protocols. Uh, I think one of them got scared because uh, his serum calcium rose when he was taking 20,000 units daily orally. Uh, so he he's like, I, I, it's not working for me. My doctor is freaking out. Like, I really don't want to do this anymore, right? So then they tried the same thing topically. But again, doses that are like were like five to 10 times lower. And then one of these people recently had a colonoscopy and his Crohn disease lesions are completely gone. So as of right now, he's in remission without cortisol. And he dropped Humira a long time ago, and he tried a vitamin D, and he, you know, he did get a relief in symptoms, uh, but basically his serum calcium rose. He's like, the doctor said, I don't think you should be doing this anymore. He freaked out, but then he switched to navel application, and then now he just had a colonoscopy, and his lesions are gone. Now, keep in mind, he's also been taking that higher dosage orally for a while, maybe a couple of months, but he also stopped for a month and then resumed the topical one in the navel. Be that as it may, I think that's a good indication that, you know, that's, you know, that's a good route to try if you're having problems with vitamin D. And vitamin D is now becoming really like a universal nutrient on par, right on par, uh, uh, sitting up there with like progesterone and thyroid. Um, And really it's a surrogate for both. It can actually, it overlaps in effects with both of these. Um, And it's very, very important. Like whether you're afraid of COVID-19 or any other viral disease or any kind of immune-related disease or chronic disease, Vitamin D levels really need to be up at least at the levels of around 40. I think 40 to 60 was shown to be optimal. Higher than 60, there's some studies showing that it's not that good for your like long-term health. But again, if you're having troubles raising vitamin D levels, um, I would suggest trying the navel route. I'm hearing from a bunch of different people with all kinds of different products, not only ours, saying that uh, they, they managed to raise their levels when nothing else worked, um, even though they were <laughs> gulping that like water. In the past. Remember that that Sekic paper where they say like vitamin D would be a useful therapy in combination with progesterone or any other therapy or something. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. That, hit, that, that that article, it, again, it's like as if Ray had penned it. It's talking about lowering nitric oxide, lowering intracellular calcium, protecting the mitochondria and uh, progesterone and vitamin D having these overlapping effects, uh, helping to do both. Um, Okay, so I actually forgot to uh, read these uh, read these stickers. And so, Michael, every single show we do, Michael donates fifty dollars. So thank you so much. Sincerely appreciate that. Linda Bell, again, another chronic longtime uh, supporter. Linda, thank you so much. Harry Burgos, nothing. Uh, Linda did five dollars. Thank you so much, Linda. Harry Burgos again. Thank you so much, Harry, for ten dollars. Michelle for ten dollars. I I am laughing because I can't believe uh, how generous people are, people are. So thank you so much, Gene, for nineteen ninety nine. Thank you so much, Gene. Thank you for your question too, Gene. Uh, I, again, I, I'm physically ill from not being able to read these questions because I was so excited about it. But uh, we'll read those next time. Okay, so real end of the show. <laughs> uh, sincerely appreciate it, guys. You know, these are fun and we'll keep up with the show schedule. We'll do repeat next week and then we'll probably do a, a week off and then Georgie and I will kick it off again and do these shows. So thank you guys so much. We have an amazing audience. Give this episode a like. Uh, listen to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, BitChute to enter the Tokovit contest. Dylan Morrison or Morris, you have won the Tokovit, so please email me and have a safe 
weekend, Georgie, final words? I'm going to use the rating. No. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, stay sane is the best thing I can give you, you know, and just, just, uh, I think at this, at this point, most people realize if there's truth out there, it's up for you to discover it. <laughs> Nobody else can do it for you. Uh, at the risk of extending the length of the show, somebody did say, how do you guys maintain a happy disposition talking about such depressing things? I don't. And, <laughs> I, and I, I would say, I would say I'm a, um, I'm not, not much different than I am on these live streams. I'm a generally happy person, even though what's happening is so dark and depressing. But in the comment reply to them, I wrote that I thought, I think you and I and you, I, um, you, me and Ray are do like, that's very meaningful to me to be doing was, these things. You just took and, the words from my mouth. I'm going to quote Aristotle. There's this concept in ancient Greek philosophy called eudaimonia. So it basically means a fulfilled and meaningful life. It doesn't always mean a happy life. Uh, it just means that as long as you feel like you're on the right track and your life has meaning, that's all you need, really need for, for, you know, for good health and for thriving. Um, but it doesn't mean it's going it's to be easy and it doesn't mean it's always going to be happy. Um, so as long as you find meaning uh, of, uh, in what you do, um, I think in general you'll be okay. Of course, that doesn't mean it's going to help, it's going to save you from a civil war or any kind of other cataclysm, but uh, at least it will give you a disposition on life that you can solve pretty much any problem um, as long as basically you're you're left to be free and to exercise your your own authorities and qualities that nature gave you, uh, you really the only reason we're not in an optimal situation, just like Ray said, if you're not thriving, you're degenerating. It's because there are multiple factors outside of uh, of outside of our internal environment that are basically hindering us. But even those can change. And I guess the really words of hope is that nobody is in full control of nature and reality. Uh, no matter how evil and how capable they are. Um, uh, you know, I, I mean, I worked for a while in artificial intelligence, and one of the reasons I moved away from that field is that I noticed that, you know, basically it's really it's really a delusion that you can mimic reality digitally. Um, and uh, the people that try to control us have vested their all of their hope in the fact that computers will be able to somehow replace humanity and what humanity is capable of and we will become obsolete. I know for a fact that this is not possible. So uh, I think at, at the very least we're going to see some some uh, collapse of that illusion. And my only you know my only hope is, and here's where it's the the wild card is that I'm hoping the system doesn't take too many of us uh, on its way down with itself. Uh, because but rest assured, the way this technology that it's being used or at least promoted um, to control all of us and replace even us. Uh, because we're useless consumers or useless eaters. Is that what they call us, right? Yeah. It does not work, not nearly, not even close to what is being advertised for. It is not artificial intelligence. At best, it's an artificial optimization mechanism in very specific, narrow niches. Cannot replace intelligence. It cannot replace reality. And it cannot replace humanity. And without, without those, the very system, the evil system that tries to control us also collapses. So I think that will be, eventually that system will self-destruct. Again, let's hope it self-destructs on its own and it does not destroy too many of us with it. Yeah, I'm trying to look for a Maslow quote, but I'm pretty sure he says, oh, the only happy, happy people I know are the ones who are working well at something they consider important. And so, again, you could probably uh, eliminate my happy disposition by putting me in a FEMA camp, but, <laughs> but we'll have to wait till that day comes. Okay, with that, 
Thank you, Georgia Dinkov, my Bulgarian brother. You make these worth doing. Uh, sincerely appreciate it. You you take time out of your day to do this, you know, and so I sincerely appreciate so do you. it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel obligated to. Okay, uh, audience, thank you so much. Sincerely appreciate it. Hit the like button if you enjoyed this. Leave a comment. Uh, do the, the algorithm stuff that helps us as well, even though uh, I am pretty sure this shadows uh, this channel is shadow banned in some way. We'll be back next week with Ray Pete. Uh, thank you guys so much. Have a safe weekend, and we'll talk to you guys very soon. Peace out, everybody.